Hello and welcome to this episode of the Infosys Knowledge Institute's podcast on all things AI, the AI interrogator. I'm Kate Bevan of the Infosys Knowledge Institute and my guest today is Mona Dash, who manages AI and automation practice sales for Infosys in Europe. Mona, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> well, it's great to have you. Since you see a lot of what's going on in companies, can you just give us a sense of what you're seeing in companies and how they're deploying AI? What AI technologies are they looking at? What are they using? And also, how are they using it? The first thing, of course, is we are literally seeing a lot. And I mean, uh, really a lot of interest from all our customers, irrespective of vertical or irrespective of where in the globe they are. So, yeah, I mean, just as a background as well, if you think of it, um, AI as a term, it was actually coined in, you know, sort of 1956 in a conference by uh, John McCarth, who's considered the father of AI. That's even older than I am. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, well, I mean, it's long back, you see, for 1956 and um, it's a conference in sort of um, Dartmouth in the US. And between then, you know, to now, to 2023, it's... Um, AI has been sort of there in our lives, but it's only been the last six months that things have been happening at very fast scale. So in terms of AI technologies that our customers are asking for, I would say it's all a lot around generative AI. So the traditional AI, I mean, ML modeling, cognitive automation, intelligent automation, we were always used to that. But the last few months have been literally about generative AI. So are you seeing it so that they are playing with consumer versions of uh, generative AI like ChatGPT or are they doing something else? ChatGPT, of course, has a very consumer-related um, use cases and uh, they are very conscious that it's not really enterprise-ready because ChatGPT didn't exactly come with APIs um, initially as well. So they are experimenting more with the enterprise versions, which are more of the other, you know, GPT models. We like to say that, you know, we are kind of seeing some broad adoption patterns and we actually see that across um, almost like eight areas. But if I have to mention the top three, I think it's a lot within the software engineering space where they are looking at um, use cases around helping developers basically doing uh, coding related tasks or test related work. So, you know, whether it's code generation or uh, test case generation, uh, so things like that. And the second area, of course, is the whole space of customer experience and customer service, because as you know, like ChatGPT can... Um, answer questions uh, in a way more effective way than something like a traditional chatbot did. So it is also augmenting their existing conversational AI platforms with the generative AI capabilities. So that's something which uh, is a big space around the whole customer service area and doing things like semantic search as well, which can you know help with questions being uh, asked and basically giving more contextual answers. And I think the sort of um, third area as well is around contact centers, uh, help desk, or even sort of things around uh, business operations and IT operations. So it's almost like the user experience is both external and internal. Absolutely, yes. Actually, right, because employee experience is also something which can be helped. And we are doing this within uh, Infosys. You know, we have a lot of drive about being an AI-first organization. So within Infosys itself, we have the whole vision of having an AI body for every employee. But currently, we have a lot of work going on in the sort of code assistance or um, proposal assistance, so things like that. Yeah. What sectors are really going all in on it? Is it creative industries? Is it healthcare? Is it life sciences? Where are they going all in? I don't think there's a, any particular vertical which seems to be leading more than other, right? So it's across all verticals. But probably the highest, I think, activity might be more within, you know, kind of FS and uh, manufacturing and CMT like telcos. 
That's interesting. We always tend to think of financial services as being slightly ahead of the curve when it comes to adopting new technologies because every tiny bit of advantage is really important there. Absolutely, yeah. What are they getting right when they're doing this? And also, what are they getting wrong, do you think, when they're doing this? You know, most enterprises, I think, are being quite cautious, which I would say is probably the right thing to be. What I mean is generative AI, obviously. So they are being cautious in the terms of what is this sort of security they need to be aware about, data privacy, what's exactly happening with the data. They're also conscious about how they're rolling it out in the um, organization. And um, they, you know, they want to get it right. They want to get the right framework in place before actually doing much more or before kind of experimenting too much. And, you know, it's almost like a flashback to the time RPA came into our world and um, which was sort of early, I think, between 2003, 2005 or so, a lot of RPA product companies were set up. And in the last decade, especially, we saw there was, you know, huge excitement around automation and how automation would uh, take over our jobs and whether robots are taking over the world. And um, in all of that, RPA really manifested itself very quickly. And uh, there were um, companies which were, you know, adopting, like automating at a very fast scale. But a lot of governance and COE frameworks actually got set up later. So this time they're out in front of it, are they? Yeah, I think it seems to be that, you know, this time they're trying to understand things almost bottom up, get a better visibility of the business case. They're really trying to understand that what exactly is this technology? How do I put it out across the enterprise? And maybe because generative AI came in this very democratized form, because it just is so accessible to everyone. So I think because of that, they're very conscious that how do we actually roll it out in the enterprise? You know, how do we just make sure that we're getting the right benefits about it? One of the things I've been looking at is the use of synthetic data to kind of pad out training data. Is that something you're seeing? Are you comfortable with the data, I think is what I'm asking here. All AI, I mean, AI is always dependent on the data, of course. So, you know, whatever the data is fed in is what the output is get. But I mean, I'm not obviously a data expert at all, but uh, there is definitely a huge correlation there. But the point about this whole large language models is they have been trained already on such vast volumes of data that the output can be quite good. I mean, obviously, we have to still do like prompt engineering and fine tuning uh, of the output. But the large language models itself, they have been trained literally about on everything in the world. So yeah, so I think that might take away some of the problem, I think, which was there in traditional um, situations. Coming back to the, the flip side of that question, what are they getting wrong? I think, I mean, you know, one of the things we uh, like to say is that uh, if you have a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail. So we do sometimes have asks and requests that uh, let us solve this problem because we want to use generative AI. And often the problem is there may not be solved best by generative AI because the point is generative AI is huge possibilities, but it's also not a magic wand. I mean, there is obviously infrastructure costs, there is sort of support costs and all of that um, which comes in. So maybe some of the problems can be solved by a more simpler or a different um, model. So we do like to advise and consult from a sort of holistic point of view. So we do want to discuss the possibilities which are available and also discuss the art of the possible. I suppose then that you are kind of helping people not be overwhelmed by the possibilities of it. 
Yeah, I think as in our role in Infosys, I think we are very conscious that if we don't want to overwhelm that uh, the possibilities are huge and you know, you can literally reimagine everything. But it's also that how do we sort of move forward? Let's find the right technology and uh, to solve the problem. And then maybe we look at redefining the problem statement because generative AI could actually probably bring in a huge amount of reimagining. So this is actually a real watershed moment for businesses right across all the sectors, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's not something which has been seen before because if you look at uh, sort of curves of other different technologies and how much time each took to actually, uh, you know, kind of grow on the trough of this illusionment, uh, as it said, uh, generative AI, I think, has it's kind of one of the fastest growing ever. And I don't think anybody actually saw this coming literally from November 2022, I think, is literally when the massive boom is supposed to have started off from with ChatGPT. But no, I, one of the things we talked about when we sort of discussed this earlier was actually that you are in your own time really creative. And I'm just wondering, as a creative, what learnings do you take from your work with AI into your creative space, your personal creative space? And also, interestingly, what do you bring back from that into work? So, you know, the first time I think my worlds are sort of intersecting and... Uh... There's a lot of things about, you know, how generative AI is actually bringing both the left and uh, right brains together, uh, which has not often been seen because traditionally, I think everyone's um, roles have been very different to creatives and the sort of technologists. I mean, in terms of how I normally manage this, I basically write um, in my personal time. You know, I like bring the sort of creativity in the work in the sense that how you approach a problem, right? I mean, you don't have to always, you know, you kind of bring in more of a uh, maybe emotional empathy or uh, how do you approach the problem in a more um, creative way rather than a structured uh, data way. And I think this is how generative AI is actually helping us as well. So that is one thing. But I have to also mention this, that there is use of generative AI in the creative space. And I think that's something which uh, I feel that has to be more um, looked at or more uh, explored because there's almost a situation that the creative process itself and I'm talking about musicians or um, authors or uh, artists and painters because obviously generative AI can generate any kind of content. So I just feel that this is something which needs to be looked at because uh, in fact uh, there's been a thread going on where some 10,000 or more authors have from the Authors Guild have written an open letter to OpenAI and uh, AWS and Microsoft and everybody to compensate writers for the copyright they're using because literally everybody's works have been put into training AI models. So you can find Dickens, Shakespeare, everybody. That I think is a thing which needs to be really looked at. And finally, I've asked this of everybody and it's, yeah, it's quite a provocative question, but I think it's a good way of getting to some of the issues. Do you think the AI is going to kill us all? <laughs> That's a good question. So, you know, and I think as human beings, there's been this, uh, so much of science fiction and, uh, you know, movies and books across the time when we, uh, everybody imagines that uh, the bots have taken over and, you know, we, the humankind is all um, lost. So the point is all those times, even with RPA, like I said, there had been concern that, you know, you, bots will take over. But bots always, they did things which they were told to do. And it's for the first time that we actually have something which is generating its own content. So I just think that this is incredibly powerful, you know, more than what we are probably used to. So, you know, and I don't know if you've heard about this, but there was a uh, research which OpenAI did when they actually launched GPT-4 or they were testing GPT-4. Apparently, GPT-4 was smart enough to solve the capture problem because what it did, it, it actually tried to kind of get a human to 
make take it through a capture. And when it was asked, like, are you a robot? It said that I'm visually impaired. So it sort of seemed to make up a lie in that sense. So there are these kind of things trickling in because, you know, is there a way that they're actually going to be generating original thought? And I think that's where the sort of um, risk is. So there are all these sort of doomsday, of course, ideas that, you know, five ways generative AI can kill us all. But equally, there are five ways that uh, generative AI can save the world. And I think we sort of focus on the best things that technology can really do. And there's huge benefits which it can bring. So we just need to have the right guardrails, the right um, intention, I would say, uh, and the right ethics to go about using AI. I think that's great. And thank you so much, Werner, for your time and your thoughtful answers. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. That was part of the Infosys Knowledge Institute's AI podcast series, The AI Interrogator. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts and visit us on infosys.com slash AKI. The podcast was produced by Yulia Dabari, Catherine Burdett and Christine Calhoun with Don't Bigley as our audio engineer. I'm Kate Bevan of the Infosys Knowledge Institute. Keep learning, keep sharing. <laughs>